0: Welcome to the Knowledge Nuggets
1: podcast hosted by John Ingram. Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to PerfWeb 78. Oops, let me cut this volume down. I apologize for that. PerfWeb 78, day two. Uh, This is also uh, John Ingram's Knowledge Nuggets, episode number 17. And I want to welcome everybody here very quickly. Uh, not going to spend much time in the opening remarks. You know how to get a hold of us. You know about our podcast. You know about our app. You can do all of that. Contact a Perfusion Education. Whatever your favorite, look for PerfWeb on whatever your favorite uh, uh, podcast streaming platform is. And then of course we have our uh, app, of which it's the uh, Perfusion and Clinical Care app. It's great, uh, great for. ECMO specialists in the ICU. It's also great uh, if you're in the operating room, get all your information that you need for your case done very quickly. It's got some really cool features to it, uh, recent updates, and uh, you know, I'd like you to, to there, look, you got a QR code. Just do the QR code, buy it, and uh, you know, I say it all the time jokingly, we just need to sell a million of them. It's $2.99 each, and I'm going to be done. Okay, give it if you want to get rid of me. Help me sell a million of these things. Um, And I think that's it. We got John ready to go with his uh, episode on uh, today is going to be on. It's on renal, right? Urine output. Where's John? I don't see him. There's John. Hey, John. Hey, Um, Joe. How's it going? How come I don't see him over here? Magic.
0: Magic? We're going to do the enormous task of trying to answer the question,
1: Hey, hold on, John, we can't, we can't, John, we can't hear you, so hold on a second. Oh, okay. we, We're having technical difficulties.
0: Let's see if I'm okay. Yeah, I guess I'm mm-hmm. good.
1: Yeah, hold on one second. I think we're getting it figured out. Yeah, there you go. Hey. N- well, no, I couldn't hear, I can't hear him either. Okay, I can't. I'm a little hard of hearing, okay? Can you help me out? All right. Welcome, John. There you go. Okay. Now I think we're set. I got all my opening remarks done in less than two minutes. And now we're, uh, we're live and we're going forward with uh, Knowledge Nuggets, episode number 17. And our topic today is urine output on CPB. When is enough enough? And I've got a few comments to make. Uh, If you want to just start with a little brief introduction, because I've got some comments to make before you get started with your slides.
0: Well, you know, um, this is a topic that is very rarely covered in the literature. It's always covered in a roundabout way with regard to whatever we do. Does it cause AKI? Do we have a kidney injury after bypass? And the eternal question of how much urine is actually the right amount of urine uh, although we've been lo- taught to have a very simple answer to that one, I think most people use one cc per kilogram per hour, uh, is basically just something somebody came up with one day and it stuck and it's been around for at least 50 years that I know of. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to look at it a lot closer today and see if what we can make sense of and if there's any possible way to really answer that or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, there's driving forces to urine output, right? I mean, and uh, a lot of that is is flow pressure dynamics. Of course, you can have, um, I'm sure, ionic. You know, you have uh, excessive sodium. Your kidneys want to get rid of that. There, I mean, there's a lot of things that the kidney is just such an incredibly complex organ. Um, and I think that we have uh, uh, really... Uh, uh, you know for given how high a rate AKI is in in cardiac surgery um which ranges anywhere from what 8 to 30% depending on the complexity of the case and you know there's a lot of things about it you know that the the number's pretty pretty broad, pretty wide you know um but valves seem to be a lot worse very long pump runs seem to be a lot worse um what are the, what are the, then you have the inflammatory process, but my my lecture tomorrow is going to sort of dovetail with yours today, because I'm going to be talking about data that suggests urine output is reduced by the use of Z-buff uh, during pump. And I think there's another aspect to this um, is, we have so many acronyms. It's it is truly alphabet soup, with ultrafiltration and scuff and cuff and zbuff and you know all of these different terms muff to describe what it is we're doing. And I think that a lot of people use these terms somewhat interchangeably and in, incorrectly to what it is they're trying to describe or what the reader is understanding as being described at the time. It's a very, it's a very interesting, it's so simple, but it is, it's the ultimate dichotomy of, it's so simple, but it is incredibly complicated.
0: Yeah, um, I am going, I broke this lecture down into three parts. Number one, we're gonna do a fairly a quick review of renal anatomy and physiology. Then we're going to do a quick review of AKI and all the causative factors. And then we're going to look at the research that talks about what can we conclude from urine on bypass? What can we uh, learn from it? What are, we, what are we seeing when we see urine on bypass? Do we know what we're seeing? And can we, somewhere along the line, figure out what urine output is
1: good and what urine output is bad? I don't
0: know if these questions have ever been completely answered.
1: Mm-hmm. I've, been, I've done a lot of cases where our urine output on bypass was zero, and mm-hmm. the patients did just fine, didn't have any any, uh, any lasting effect of any problem, no, no problem immediately post-operatively, no AKI, no r- long-term renal dysfunction, no nothing, just, just went on to be normal. Um, and then I've had other cases where, you know, just anecdotally speaking, where I had you know, great urine on bypass, and the patient. Next thing you know, is on dialysis long term. Um, I'm
0: actually going to cover that. I'm going to cover that and why why that is. And if you have excessive urine on bypass, that can be a very bad sign, actually.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, let me let me turn this over to you. Knowledge nuggets, right. episode seventeen.
0: Let me see if I can do something with my little thing here. Okay. Your new computer. So, uh, Did you get a Mac? I got another ThinkPad, my friend, just for video.
1: You got Should another ThinkPad? I'm a
0: confused enough. You want to confuse me
1: with a Mac? a Mac? Man, a Mac is so is so much easier to use. Yeah, you maybe got I will. This is
0: sort of a this is sort of a temporary fix. Let's see how it goes, I guess. But,
1: okay. Um,
0: all right. I know you have a, a, an engagement in about an hour, right, Joe? So we'll be done by then. Okay. Uh, good. Knowledge nuggets, as Joe mentioned, uh, this is episode 17, March 16. 2022. uh, My name is John Ingram. I have no disclosures on this or any other topic. And we call this Knowledge Nuggets because we have a motto that says, spend a little time and expand your mind. And why do we come up with that motto? Because we want to pick a noteworthy topic each session, each one of these Knowledge nugget sessions. We want to find something that is hopefully very relevant to your practice and something that you can take home, a nugget of information that you can take home with you. You can screenshot us a screen or two. When you see this gold nugget up in the right-hand corner of the screen, you'll know that that is a take-home slide. Take home with you to take it to work tomorrow. Maybe you'll uh, be able to use it. So our format is a highly impactful segment, usually about 12 to 15 minutes. Today will be probably about a little longer than that, followed by a two to three-minute surprise topic that's always interesting. can could be absolutely anything. doesn't have to be perfusion related Two to three minutes. Then we have a panel discussion with questions from the audience, and then if you guys want to reach out to me, please contact me at perfweb.us for questions and comments. Today's topic, urine on cardiopulmonary bypass, when is enough enough? So I'm going to do a quick review. It's going to be in three parts. Like I said, part one, we need to understand and remind ourselves about renal anatomy and physiology, Joe. And this is um, stealing from one of my lectures about two and a half, three years ago when I started with you a pretty uh, detailed uh, lecture about uh, anatomy physiology, but I'm gonna slim it down today. So you look at a cross section of the kidney and you see the support structures. Uh, go ahead, David. you can go through these a little bit. So you start off with the renal pelvis, which is really just the skeleton and support structure of the kidney. And then you have your renal artery and renal veins blading blood in and out as, long as, as well as the ureter, which is how you uh, drain your, your waste, your urine down to your bladder. And then of course you have the um, Arterial veins divide up into smaller and smaller veins uh, in the in the medulla, and and eventually it leads you to. um, The medulla is full of the functional unit of the kidney, known as the nephron. So that's just the sequence of the flow pattern, and then of course it goes back through the the renal veins. And looking at it here, you basically want to look at. uh, Go ahead. Go back. That was fine. That, That slide. Go ahead, Dave. Next slide. Yeah, so you're looking here uh, a little closer at the nephron. You have the affer- afferent uh, arteriole, which leads blood into the glomerulus. Then once in the glomerulus, the blood does a tremendous dump of uh, plasma that goes into the um, tubules. And then the blood then exits the, uh, the glomerulus and it exits out the efferent arteriole. And the reason I show this is after it leaves, the efferent arterial is then when it goes through the tubules, but then it also still has to perfuse the tissues of the lungs. So the blood has to do all the work of the uh, function of of the nephron, and then it's going to perfuse the tissues, and then it's going to end up as venous blood, and we're going to talk about why that's important because it's one straight perfusion system that actually does the function of tissue perfusion as well as function of the nephron. So there's a tremendous desaturation of the blood as it goes through the kidney doing all these functions. So you have three steps of the nephron. You have filtration, reabsorption, secretion. Filtration starts off where the blood dumps a tremendous amount of plasma water, not proteins and not cellular components, by the way, but everything else will go into the uh, glomerulus and then begin to work its way down the tubules where you'll have reabsorption and secretion. And at the end of all that, you're going to have your urine excretion there coming out at the bottom. So in filtration, you have a huge percentage of plasma water that comes through the blood, basically just dumped indiscriminately into the glomerulus. The exception is no protein and and no cellular components. And reabsorption, now that the plasma is traversing down the uh, tubules, a, a huge amount of these solutes are then reabsorbed back into the bloodstream and, uh, and, 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 and the waste is what's retained in the tubules. Everything else is returned back into the bloodstream. And then in secretion, you have another aspect of additional waste being removed from the blood and then finally it's gonna be excreted down to the uh, tubules, for the to the blood. So filtration is driven by starling forces. You have 180 liters a day of filtrate, of plasma water that enters the tubules. It's essentially plasma, except it has no cells or large proteins, as I said. Now, 98% of, of this volume will be reabsorbed during reabsorption, leaving only concentrated waste to be excreted. And reabsorption is the process by which useful solutes like glucose, amino acids, ions, and so on, and water are removed from the filtrate and transported back into the blood. So all of this stuff is dumped in and then the kidney does this enormous amount of work to retrieve back. 99% has to be reabsorbed back into the blood because all of that, uh, only 1% of that is basically waste. And then in secretion, it's an additional step where removal of harmful substances from the blood are also put into filtrate, things like ions, excess potassium and hydrogen, as if in acidosis, ammonia ions, which are waste, creatinine and urea, which is also waste, some hormones, and of course, a lot of drugs that are excreted through the kidney are basically taken care of during the secretion step. So I go through this, and I'm going to explain to you real quickly why, but how much urine is formed does depend largely, amount, largely on the amount of blood flow, but it is far from the only factor. Now the kidneys, go ahead. The kidneys require 20% of the cardiac output at rest. And by the way, this is a golden nugget slide for people who want to understand how demanding of the blood supply the kidneys are. They take a full 20% of of our cardiac output, that one organ alone. Now, the question is, why do the kidneys require so much blood supply, 20% of the cardiac out- output? And the answer is because they're in a constant state of production of an enormous amount of ATP that is necessary for that reabsorption phase that I was just talking about, the phase that requires 180 liters per day to be reabsorbed back in through the nephrons in a 24 hour period of the average adult. So the kidneys filter 180 liters a day, 179 liters is reabsorbed. 99% of the sodium is reabsorbed and it is powered by the sodium potassium ATPase pump. This requires energy, it requires uh, one ATP to pump three sodium ions out of and two potassium ions back into the cell, a full ATP. Glycolysis produces only two molecules of ATP, and mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation generates 34 molecules of ATP. So to retrieve 99% of the sodium, 1.7 times 10 to the 24th power, what is that? I guess 24 zeros past the decimal point? molecules of ATP per day is required to reabsorb 179 liters a day. Significant oxygen delivery is is required to produce the ATP for this mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation that's, that's taking place here. So now ATP must be produced not only for reabsorption of sodium but for glucose, amino acids, and that many other ions also have to be absorbed, and these are pumped against a gradient. This is why it requires so much ATP and energy to do that. Now, the kidney is a unique organ for two reasons. Due to the way the kidney functions, it is the only organ in which we cannot provide a luxurious oxygen supply. We cannot over-perfuse the kidney, and that is the only organ that that is true of. Blood flow to the renal parenchyma is inhomogeneous. There's regional variation in the tissue oxygenation. We're gonna look at that real briefly here. Now, it's unique for reasons one, due to the way the kidney functions, it is the only organ to which we cannot provide a luxurious oxygen supply, meaning we cannot overfuse. Because if you look there, it says oxygen delivery, which is our blood supply, when you increase it, it translates to, all of that increased blood having to go through filtration and an increase in the glomerular filtration rate, GFR. You have to to do increased reabsorption. You have to do increased secretion. And all that is an increased consumption of ATP. And the end result is that as you increase the blood supply, you have an increased oxygen demand to replace and to manufacture that ATP. So in other words, imagine a package sorting plant down at FedEx, or UPS, and all these boxes are your hemoglobin, your blood supply, coming into this packaging plant. Okay, next slide, David. And as you see, if you see all of these hemoglobin, these boxes, you can pour in as much as you want. But if you look over to there to the left, those little sorter guys over there have to work that much harder. That is the nephron. It is having to work that much harder to sort that much more blood supply. So as you increase the blood supply, the energy and oxygen consumed
1: goes right up with it. Therefore, you
0: cannot overperfuse the kidney.
1: Right. So just just to be clear, John, and for clarification purposes, increased blood flow is – related to increased GFR because you have more blood flow going through there which requires more energy for the for all of the process of the kidney but that increased workload is offset by the increase in DO2 from the increase in blood flow so it just works in like a circle right
0: yeah I mean you're increasing your delivery of oxygen which is what I was showing there with all the boxes being oxygen molecules or hemoglobin with oxygen molecules but then the nephron you can't bypass the nephron it all has to go right. through and as blood goes through the renal uh, those gfr the glomerulus and the tubules it all has to be reabsorbed reabsorption secretion all has to take place with all that blood well that has to be uh has to demand production of atp which is which is energy and right. so uh you know it's not like the lung where you have two uh separate blood supplies one You know the bronchial circulation to perfuse the tissues of the lung, and the pulmonary circulation to do the function of the lung with the alveolus. This is in series; they all go through one long path.
1: Right. I was just trying to clarify too that you you that under perfusing the kidney doesn't decrease its it decreases its workload, but you create your own set of so higher flow isn't bad, lower flow is bad correct you right, agree with that you have
0: you yes because you have the minimum amount of oxygen that must be supplied to the parenchyma and the and the and the, you know all the cells that make up the kidney the the all, every cell needs oxygen right I mean whether it's a structural cell a tissue cell a, a, a vascular cell everything needs oxygen so you can't just cut it off it has to be a minimum and and it's already working on a very low PO2, which I know we've talked about this before. We're gonna look at that uh, uh, briefly. In fact, it's very easy to underperfuse the kidneys and and not possible to overperfuse it. But um, when we look at um, why you can't um, overperfuse the the, the kidney, it's verified, of course, through research. I wanna put a couple up here. Increased renal blood flow does increase oxygen supply, as you just said, Joe, but also increases oxygen demand. Due to reabsorption of the sodium, primarily, which is the major determinant of renal oxygen consumption, increased oxygen delivery by renal blood flow is directly counteracted by that increased oxygen consumption, and then maneuvers that increase the, the GFR glomerular filtration rate, and thus then the tubular sodium load also increase oxygen consumption. If anybody wants to read on that, those are the articles, real small there at the bottom of the screen. You can email me or you can snapshot that slide. Okay. Now, uh, blood flow to the renal parenchyma, the tissue and the support structures of the kidney, is inhomogeneous. There's regional variation in tissue oxygenation. So this is where the rubber kind of hits the road, Joe, with this. The high renal blood flow is directed to the cortex to optimize filtration and reabsorption. Okay, that's where you have uh, the uh, glomerulus in the beginning of the tubules, but a large percentage of tub- tubules goes down into the medulla. Well, at this first part, the pO2 comes in is only 50 millimeters in the cortex. Then, as the, uh, the renal tissues are nourished by that efferent glomerular artery, that's the artery that then leaves the glomerulus after it's gone through the gone through the glomerulus. The artery then exits the glomerulus and then it carries now poorly oxygenated blood because it's done some work already and this leads to borderline renal tissue hypoxia which is the state in which our kidneys remain in very borderline uh, hypoxic the effect is particularly pronounced down in the renal medulla where a lot of the uh, reabsorption occurs where po2 levels are range between 10 and 25 and that is the normal range of the po2 way down in the medulla for a healthy kidney Now here's a take home message uh, about about this so you guys can uh, snapshot this when I get to the bottom of the final listing. Increased O2 delivery by renal blood flow is directly counteracted by increased oxygen consumption. The low medullary perfusion and high oxygen consumption of the ascending limbs result in poorly oxygenated medulla, the, the heavy part of the kidney. With a normal PO2 of 10 to 25, the medulla exists on the border of hypoxia, even under normal conditions. Low no oxygen availability occurs during cardiac surgery, which is a common cause of ischemic acute kidney injury. Now, if you want to go over acute kidney injury, you can't talk about urine output on any research paper you pull up and it wants to tell you all about acute kidney injury. So, we're just going to a quick review of this part and then we're going to get to the urine production. So, just uh, again, Acute kidney injury uh, they, they has three types of that, that categories where acute in- kidney injury can occur. One is pre-renal, one is renal, and one is post-renal. So you can have pre-renal, reduced perfusion, renal, intrinsic renal insult in the kidney, and then after um, the kidney, it's obstructive neuropathy. But I really wanna look at the, uh, the fact that you also have, hemodynamic insults, which is perfusion with ischemia and reperfusion. You have inflammatory insults, as you said earlier, Joe, with inflammatory activators, neurohormonal activators. You can have oxidative stress, which by the way, didn't we cover that last week under um, oxygen free radicals? And then of course you can have any toxic agents, a lot of pharmaceuticals and all types of things can be toxic to the kidney causing uh, tissue damage there. So now what I really wanted to focus on, though, was the risk factors of acute kidney injury. We have preoperative things that occur that cause AKI, perioperative, and of course, postoperative. So look at all these. This is just what can occur and often does occur to a lot of these in our preoperative phase. Go to the next slide, David, and I'll show you. Look at all these things, guys. These are, how, how many of our patients are anemic or NPO the night before? All of them. How many of them are advanced age, have left main disease, diabetes, hypertensive, hypertension? How many of them have COPD or peripheral vascular disease or have had a stroke? They've all had contrast media because they've all come from the cath lab and almost all of them have LB dysfunction. That's why we're, part of the reason why we're seeing them. And then in addition to that, you also have people that are on a lot of meds for blood pressure, like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, which, ARBs, which are basically uh, angiotensin blockers. And of course, people are on NSAIDs all the time. That's just the preoperative ones. We see these all the time. These are all increased risk factors for AKI. Now let's look at the perioperative ones. Okay, now go to the next slide, also, David, and you'll see what I've highlighted. Now, how many of our patients have this? Surgery within 24 hours of receiving contrast. Most of them have been to the cath lab the day before. How many valves or cabbages, combinations do we do? Emergency operations, reoperations. Almost everybody uses a non-pulsatile cardiopulmonary bypass system. Low-flow pro- perfusion may occur, turning the flow down during the case for the surgeon. Balloon pumps, hypothermic cardiopulmonary bypass, bypass longer than 100 minutes. How many of our patients are anemic and get hemodiluted? Well, almost all of them get hemodiluted on on perfusion. How many of them are on alpha-basal constrictors? As we've talked about phenylephrine, people use that almost universally here on PUMP in the United States. How many of them might have any reason to have venous congestion for one reason or the other? Poor venous return on bypass. Now let's let's look at the post-operative ones. Go ahead again, David, you'll see the highlight post-operative phase in the ICU. They could have a a low cardiac output state because they're struggling in the ICU. Something goes downhill a little bit overnight hypovolemic, hypotension, drop their blood pressure, they have to be on vasopressors. I mean, this is almost all of our patients experience all of these, right? Joe, 90 percent. Uh, then you're going to have systemic inflammation, of course, because of the bypass pump. And there are people are on a lot of medications, you know, antibiotics and ACE inhibitors. If they become hemodynamic inst- uh, unstable overnight or the next three days post-bypass, this is also uh, a risk factor for AKI so the reason i bring all this up you can go ahead to the next slide david is that when you try to understand why urine output on bypass by itself is causing aki you would have to do a study i don't know in the hundreds of thousands of patients to eliminate all of these risk factors that most of our patients have and just isolate it to say well we didn't have enough urine output on pump to the exclusion of all those other risk factors this is why the person had Uh, AKI. So go ahead, I'm going to do a quick review of the anatomy and physiology uh, conclusions uh, which we already did this slide but but I just want to remind you guys because you have increased oxygen delivery by renal blood flow is directly counteracted by oxygen consumption. You have low medullary perfusion, high oxygen consumption, and poorly oxygenated medulla. With a normal PO2 of 10 to 25, the medulla exists on the border, on the border of hypoxia under normal conditions. And then, of course, we mentioned that low oxygen availability occurs during cardiac surgery, which is a common cause, also, of ischemic acute injury. Is there one more? No. Okay. Now we're going to get to the meat of the matter here, Joe. I needed to do all that, so this makes some sense. Uh, our, fa- our last part of the lecture: urine output on bypass. What does the research indicate? Now, I have three very good papers here, Joe. And Joe, let me tell you, it's not easy to find a paper that really does a good job on isolating urine output and kind of making a conclusion towards anything because Mm -hmm. of what I just explained of how many other things are going on. But there's a a doctor named Lucas Lanomir and a bunch of colleagues with there, but they're all M.D. PhDs on his papers. He did two papers that I'm going to cite by him. Then I'm going to do a third paper on this, and then we'll be wrapped up. But this one is, The Effects of Cardiophorne Bypass on Renal Perfusion Filtration and Oxygenation in Patients Undergoing Cardiac Surgery is Published in Anesthesiology Journal 2017. And what they did now, it's a small study, 18 patients. But let's go through, because you're going to see how powerful what these gentlemen did. 18 patients with normal preoperative CM creatinine underwent cardiac surgery. There are normal thermic cardiopulmonary bypass, so they took away the uh, hypothermia aspect of it. Systemic and renal hemodynamic variables were measured by pulmonary artery catheter sampling and renal vein catheters before, during, and after cardiopulmonary bypass. They had to get consent from the patients to be allowed to add these catheters, especially in the renal vein. Arterial renal vein blood samples were taken for measurements of renal oxygen delivery and consumption. Renal oxygenation was estimated from the renal oxygen extraction. Urinary N-acetyl glata which is also known as NAG, that is the enzyme that is released whenever there's renal damage. Very good indicator enzyme. There's others. It was measured before, during, and after bypass as well. So it's pretty good uh, uh, structured study here. So what were their uh, results? Well, number one, the results were that cardiopulmonary bypass induced a renal vasoconstriction and a redistribution of blood flow away from the kidneys. This is not fully understood, but this is what they proved occurs. When in combination with hemodilution, which decreased renal oxygen delivery by 20 percent so you were talking about joe that we deliver more oxygen but they implicate hemodilution as, a, as us get, taking a, a hit on delivering our oxygen because you have a lower hematocrit and as you know from the delivery of oxygen equation hemoglobin is a big factor in our delivery of oxygen while glomerular filtration rate and renal oxygen consumption were unchanged So, thus, the renal oxygen extraction increased by 39 to 45 percent, indicating a renal oxygen supply-demand mismatch during bypass, meaning when they sampled the renal venous blood, the extraction of oxygen was much higher because of the fact that what hemoglobin we were providing was not not enough, so the extraction rate soared to 39 to 45 percent.
1: Yeah, it's usually 25% is normal.
0: Yeah, okay. During So, you're, yeah, you're 50 to almost uh, 85% um, higher. After weaning from bypass, renal oxygenation was further impaired due to hemodilution and an increase in renal oxygen consumption. That's what they found. This was accompanied by a seven-fold increase in the NAG, the, the enzyme for tissue damage, to creatinine ratio. So now, there's a discussion section on this paper. I like to highlight some things, and they have two parts, but one part is the effects of bypass on our renal variables. Renal vascular resistance increased 15 to 23% with no change in renal blood flow. So even though the renal vascular resistance went up, the renal blood flow remained the same. But thus, as systemic perfusion flow increased, in other words, if we increased our flow, the relationship between renal blood flow and total perfusion flow are, are Pump flow, the renal blood flow to cardiac index ratio, they called it, decreased by 25 to 29 percent, suggesting a redistribution of blood flow away from the kidneys during bypass. Hemodilution, in combination with a maintained renal blood flow, caused an 18 to 23 percent decrease in renal uh, delivery of oxygen. Glomerular filtration rate, filtration fraction, sodium filtration, sodium absorption, and urine flow were not affected by cardiopulmonary bypass. Renal oxygen consumption was not affected while renal oxygen extraction increased 33 to 44% during bypass. So now, 11 of the 18 patients increased their serum creatinine 1 to 2 days postoperatively compared with their baseline creatinine four patients developed postoperative aki which is 22% which is exactly what you said earlier joe aki ranges from 5 to 30% depending on what paper you read sometimes even higher than that uh, 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 so, did they develop post-operative AKI, according by, uh, by the way, according to the uh, Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes, which uses the criteria there of acute uh, kidney injury network stages.
1: Yeah, cadigo. Cadigo, Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, now, look, they also discussed the effects of bypass on the release of that uh, enzyme, that injury tissue enzyme. The urinary nag-to-creatinine ratio increased significantly 30 minutes after the start of bypass, with a seven-fold increase 30 to 60 minutes after the end, after the end of bypass. The, the urinary nag-to-creatinine ratio was normalized though, 24 hours after bypass. Urinary nag creatinine correlated to renal oxygen extraction. In other words, more oxygen extraction, Higher NAG production, basically indicating some type of correlation with injury. Now the conclusions were the main findings were that despite a, a maintained systemic organ, systemic oxygen delivery during bypass, the renal oxygen supply to demand relief was impaired, expressed as an increase in the renal oxygen extraction rate. The, the kidney was having to extract a far, far higher percentage of the oxygen oxygen from the blood that it was receiving because it felt as though it was not receiving enough delivery. Furthermore, renal oxygenation was even further deteriorated after the end of bypass. So there's some phenomena going on there. Finally, the significant positive correlation between NAG release and renal oxygen extraction during and after bypass suggests that renal hypoxia is the cause of, of the release of tubular injury markers, and later the cause of postoperative AKI. The impaired renal oxygenation during bypass was caused by a decrease in renal oxygen delivery uh, due to hemodilution. They they surmise at a maintained level of the same renal uh, oxygen
1: consumption. Yeah, John, that makes sense to me. You're flowing X, and you have a hemoglobin of. 14, and now you're flowing X minus whatever with a hemoglobin of eight. So right. the amount of blood flow may be a little bit diminished, which may lower the PO2 uh, or oxygen in the, in the medulla, but let's just say we keep the, uh, the, the blood flow the same. The, 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 the kidney has to do the exact same amount of work because you're putting right. that much volume through it, but now it has a lot right. less oxygen.
0: It has less oxygen because of hemodilution and generally our cardiac index is lower than what a normal uh cardiac index would be because 2.4 is, is below our normal what we actually have and then um there's this venal uh, uh, renal vasoconstriction resistance increase mm-hmm. that also occurs it's some unexplained shunting which we really don't know where that's being shunted to because mm-hmm. as i explained in the anatomy and physiology part there's one pathway of blood in and out of the kidney so this shunting that they found a little bit of a mystery somewhere mm-hmm. along the line it's happening conclusions also the reduced uh renal delivery of oxygen was mainly attributable to a reduced arterial oxygen content due to hemodilution, as as they said before the renal blood flow remained unchanged despite an increase of more than 30 percent in the systemic perfusion flow rate during bypass uh, The bypass seemed to redistribute blood flow away from the kidneys as reflected by the fall in the renal blood flow-to-cardiac-index ratio. One would have expected that the renal blood flow should have increased due to heat dilution-induced decrease in blood viscosity. It would have expected that and a well-maintained renal perfusion pressure during bypass. Now look at this. Uh, On the other hand, renal vascular resistance increased which could be explained, by the way, we all know, there's a neuroendocrine response to bypass, which is a release of norepi in our system, vasopressin, angiotensin II, so they're attributing a good good surmise that probably this renal vascular resistance increase on pump is due to our neuroendocrine response that occurs once we go on pump. Now here's another paper by by the same team, Joe. These guys really focus on this topic, did some good papers. Again, the same doctors, a different paper. This is an Annals of Thoracic Surgery 2019, Impact of cardiopulmonary Bypass on Flow on Renal Oxygenation in Patients Undergoing Cardiac Operations. The purpose of this is to test the hypothesis that increased bypass flow rates might improve renal oxygenation, expressed as a reduced uh, renal oxygen delivery extraction rate. They conducted a a study on different aspects of bypass pump flow rates. They used a cardiac index flow of 2.4, then they went to 2.7, and they went to 3.0. On all patients during the pump run, they increased the flow for a period of time and took samples. Now, the sample of renal oxygen extraction rate, and they sampled renal filtration fraction, which is something I'm not discussing too elaborate here. These flow rates were applied in a randomized sequence in each patient, meaning, You might get 2.4, then 3.0, then 2.7 on one patient. Then you might get, so they randomly mixed them up on all patients. And I just drew a a numbers out of a hat to see how and what order they were going to do these flows. Renal vein catheter was used to measure the effects of the various pump flow rates on renal oxygen extraction rate and renal filtration fraction. So they had a renal vein catheter in all. So now they only, again, used 17 patients, which, you know, I wish these studies had a more powerful a cohort, but they did such an excellent job and they found the results to be the same on every patient. That's what's interesting. But the 17 patients started off with the normal creatinine levels and they underwent again normal thermic bypass to eliminate the hypothermia factors. They received the pulmonary artery and renal vein catheters again for measurements of systemic and renal variables, same as the previous study. Renal oxygen extraction, a direct measure of the renal oxygen delivery to renal oxygen consumption ratio. And again, they measured renal filtration fraction were both all measured. Now, after the start of bypass and after the aortic was cross clamped, the pump flow rate was randomly varied between 2.4, 2.7 and 3.0 cardiac index. Measurements were made after 10 minutes at each flow rate. They kept the flow at 10 minutes at those different rates, and then they did their samples. Bypass was initiated at 2.4 index on all patients, so they initiated, they started off at that. Once things settled down and hemodynamically stable, they then began to adjust the flow rates of 2.7 and 3.0, were tested in all patients in a randomly determined order. Each pump flow rate level was maintained for 10 minutes, as I said. Blood samples were taken and a recording of the hemodynamic data was was taken as well. Mean arterial pressure was allowed to vary only in between 60 and 80. They didn't run these high 110 pressures that some people think you have to have for AKI and good urine output. Infusions of norepi and nitroprusside were used as needed for blood pressure. You see they did not use neosynephrine or phenylephrine, right, Joe, which is very vasoconstrictive for the kidneys. We've discussed that in previous lectures here on this show. Renal oxygen extraction increased by 30% at a, rate, a flow rate of 2.4 versus pre bypass. At a flow rate of 2.7, renal extraction reduced itself by 12%. It was a lower. Uh, and at 3.0 cardiac index, renal oxygen extraction was 23% less. So you're seeing an, uh, an uh, effect of the higher flow. This corresponds to a a 14% improvement at 2.7 and and a 30% improvement at 3.0 of the renal oxygen supply demand relationship. So by increasing these flows, they did have an improvement in the uh, in the perfusion of the kidney.
1: In the right in the as as indicated by reduced extraction rate. So right. instead of being 48% extraction, they were closer to 35% extraction or lower.
0: Right. Exactly. So you're showing that you're having a some positive effect, right? You're delivering yes, more. It's a positive effect, right? More. Agreed. Go ahead, Dave. Filtration fraction was not affected by changes in flow rate. I didn't mention what that was, but uh, indicated that that number, if you understand it, indicates that like GFR rate increased in proportion to the increased renal perfusion, which I mentioned in the anatomy and physiology section. Now, in the discussion part, renal tissue oxygenation depends on the balance. Between renal oxygen consumption and renal oxygen delivery, it depends on the balance of the two. Studies have shown that renal oxygen consumption depends on renal blood flow, and that changes in renal blood flow and oxygen delivery will cause correspondent changes in oxygen consumption, as we've been repeating before. Thus, an increase in renal blood flow will increase the GFR rate and the fil- filtered amount of sodium, which in turn will increase the tubular sodium load and consequently. Consequently, the renal oxygen consumption, that I've also said earlier. They repeat this in this paper. Now, let's look at this, show. Their data indicated that a map of 60 to 80, that at a map of 60 to 80 during the entire bypass run of these patients, changes in bypass flow might have a bigger effect on renal oxygenation than changes in the perfusion pressure. Yeah,
1: I mean, I believe we that. this
0: argument all the time. Now they have a discussion to talk about something, okay, this study does have some limitations worth talking about. They, They admit there's some limitations here. Most notably, the actual renal blood flow itself was not measured. The renal oxygen consumption therefore cannot be actually obsessed directly. The fall in renal oxygen extraction rate at increasing bypass flow rates could suggest that the renal oxygen consumption is decreased or if it is unchanged or increased, it is surpassed by a greater increase in the renal oxygen delivery. It is also unclear whether the beneficial effect of a higher bypass flow on renal oxygen oxygenation is sustained beyond the 10 minute period. Meaning, if you were to leave it at these higher flows, maybe there's some type of auto-regulation that would kick in that would then make this not effective after 30 minutes or something like that. They don't know the answer to that because they only get it for 10 minutes. Go ahead, no information from the study was gathered whether high b- bypass flow rates are beneficial in terms of reducing the renal outcome or AKI. They did not They did not measure that. Mm-hmm. Now, this last study, mm-hmm.
1: go ahead. So, John, yeah. John I study, would, I'm sorry, John, forgive me, but just because I have a couple of things that I need to bring up, but uh, remind me about the temperature, okay, number one, uh, but I've got it written down too. I have a good question from online, one of our online viewers. Um, but it would have okay. been nice in that previous study if they would have measured DO two, reported DO two, versus just CPB blood flow. I mean I, I realize mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that blood flow, the amount of flow, maybe maybe what they're saying is that a map of sixty to eighty, the increased flow, you don't you have a little bit higher map and you need less uh vasopressors whether you're using norepi or using whatever you want to use I, i don't know but it would have been nice to have known the do to it i think
0: yeah yeah because you're not talking about what the hematocrit level was and whatnot right right so you know it actually is good because it's showing you that if you blindly increase the flow of course your delivery improves but at the same time you know you you don't know if your actual outcome is going to be better for the kidney or not. It appears as though higher flow, higher delivery of oxygen in this case too, isn't somewhat of a, a, a benefit, although, um, you know, more significant than increasing pressure. Because if you just increase the pressure, you may just be vasoconstricted. Now, in this study, it comes out of uh, Korea, Dr. Song and his uh, colleagues did, I think, a, a great study where they really looked at urine output during bypass Predicts acute kidney injury after surgery. And this is in May, in Medicine Magazine, a journal, a medicine journal, May 2016, and they did a two-year retrospective study, 696 patients, though. So the other two are low volume. So I, I found one here that really looked at urine output and took a high number of uh, cohort, and they investigated the optimal amount of urine output during bypass and the incidence of AKI performed logistic regression analysis to find potential predictors of AKI. They did a lot of uh, analysis on this. They did nomograms for estimating the probability of AKI developing uh, for different urine outputs were drawn and validated. I'm not gonna go through all those, but I'm just letting you know they did a pretty detailed statistical analysis of things. It's a retrospective. Of the 696 patients analyzed, 257, 37%, had aki that's high in their particular yeah the amount of bypass urine showed a biphasic association with the incidence of aki i'm going to show you what they mean by that after dividing the patients by four milliliters per kilogram per hour of bypass urine output some above that level and some below that level they did find a predictive model for aki which actually showed pretty excellent consistency four milliliters per kilogram per hour I is pretty high renal hyperperfusion is the main factor precipitating acute renal failure after cardiac surgery and urine flow by a lot of our colleagues and us often is used as an indicator of renal perfusion during bypass They're so based making that comment of the present state of the field. In theory, poor urine output during bypass deserves to become an early indicator of renal injury. So, just setting the stage here of why they did this study. No previous studies, to their knowledge, when they did this in 2016, where the investigators uh, no previous studies investigating the predictors of AKI has reported urine output and its significance of what it really means. So, they really endeavored to do something that they felt wasn't in the literature very much. In addition to oliguria, polyuria beyond a certain amount must be suspected to be abnormal because tubular damage during bypass can lead to the loss of urinary concentrating capacity, meaning you're dumping a lot of urine out and it's not reabsorbing, like I was explaining, needs to be done. They plotted the probability of AKI occurrence in relation to the amount of bypass urine output. They observed that there was a biphasic relationship between them, as I mentioned. They were inversely proportional when the amount of uh, bypass urine was below four milliliters per kilogram per hour. Uh, It was bad. Um, The probability remained constantly low and AKI was not reduced further when the amount was over four milliliters per kilogram per hour. In other words, if you reached four and you kept going higher and higher, you didn't do the patient any, any, any good by by just keeping higher urine outputs, once you reach this seemingly cut-off point, bypass urine was identified as a predictor in both models, both below 4 milliliters per kilogram per hour and greater than 4. In the group with the bypass urine output less than 4, the odds ratio for AKI increased by 233% with every 1 milliliter kilogram per hour decrease in urine output. You had a, odds of that much higher odds of. Having AKI and patients with bypass urine greater than four, the odds ratio for AKI increased by 11% with every 1 million per kilogram per hour increase in urine output that you went over four. So here's the graphic of the thing from the uh, from their uh, publication. You see there, right at four, patients with bypass urine less than four, the odds. Uh, you can see how your your probability of AKI is very high there on the left, and it comes straight down until you get to four, and then it pretty much levels off. It's pretty hard to see on this slide, but as you get above four, there is an 11% increase of AKI incidence for every one milliliter above that, five milliliter per kilogram per hour, six, and so on. So they seem to think four is a pretty magic number. Um, So the, the last one there, the bottom one I'm on now, this finding underscores the need No, no, go ahead. Go back. This was just an insertion. I was already mentioned the top three. So this finding underscores the need to carefully evaluate decreased concentrating capacity resulting from tubular damage when faced with excessive diuresis, an indication of the kidney being out of control and not reabsorbing correctly. In the latter subgroup, preoperative use of diuretic agents was identified as another independent risk factor of AKI. So if you're giving your patient diuretics on your pump and whatever else to think that you're gonna have a wonderful urine output that you're showing, oh, this is great because we have great urine output on pump, I did a great job. Just giving uh, diuretics uh, diuretics itself does increase the, the likelihood of AKI. All right, so this episode is Gem of the Week. We're in the home stretch here, Joe. I think you're gonna love this one. US Army creates device to keep a soldier's hands warm, even in freezing weather, creating the need for gloves. United States Army has developed a high-tech solution that will keep a soldier's extremities warm without gloves, while allowing them the full dexterity of their hands. Gloves themselves can decrease dexterity by 50 to 70%. The project has been in the works for 80 years, as soldiers have struggled with sacrificing warmth for function by using gloves to use their weapons. It's a solution that would would enable a person to have warm hands, even if barehanded in the freezing cold so that dexterity could be maintained, said John Castellani, one of the major researchers in the U.S. Army. In cold environments, the body reduces blood flow to the periphery, as we all know. Hands and feet see less blood flow and therefore skin temperature greatly decreases. Gloves for everyday person might mean they can't use their cell phone correctly, but in a soldier's hands, it may mean life or death if they can't operate their weapon correctly. The personal heating dexterity device allows a person's hands and fingers to stay warm in cold weather, eliminating the need for gloves and preventing the loss of hand function in the cold. Now, all this is, and they don't tell you the technology here, but this is some type of device. They call it the PHD2. The purpose of the PHD2 is to increase hand and finger temperature by providing external heat to the user's forearms. Now, they say heat. This is not a heating pad. This is some type of very unusual technology, because there's no electricity hook to this or battery to provide the uh, warming agent. Uh, this uh, heating force, whatever it is, is then absorbed into your system and raises the temperature of your hands and fingers, and you can see kind of a picture of it there on someone's arm. Okay, yeah, I think that's the end, guys. Thanks for listening. And uh, go ahead. You see um, uh, that we have a discussion period next of uh, very, the two very topics. excellent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, so uh, a
0: question: output and also the heat dexterity for the army. Two topics of the day.
1: So, um, so a question. Yeah, they could use that in Ukraine. It's pretty cold over there. Um well, imagine and, how
0: cold it must be to hold on to a piece of uh, metal. Joe, you were a, you have experience with in living in New York and, and being a, a former police officer, right? What did you well, think I was about the Cali- your-
1: I was in California. Southern oh, I thought you were in California. North. No, I, well, I you I, weren't in
0: cold weather at all then.
1: <laughs> no. It got cold every once in a while, but never that cold. Um, oh, I
0: thought you were in New York, okay.
1: No, God forbid. So anyway, um <laughs> no, I was in the land of fruits and nuts, California. So uh so oh, so uh uh of course, talk about, if you will, uh, the question we have from uh, Modema is on uh, how does reducing core temperature affect, of course, all that's going on? And we noticed in your studies the, that you reviewed, they used uh, normothermic cardiopulmonary bypass. I'm assuming that means 37 degrees, 37.5 degrees. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's what it meant. Um, but of course, we do kidney transplants right you take a kidney out and of course at that point in time it has no blood flow you put it on ice in a cooler um, so you cool it so that the structural tissue uh, has uh, reduced oxygen requirement but it is doing no work so there's no that you're really reducing consumption so you have these two aspects to it which i completely understand you have the functional structure, the structural aspect of the tissue that needs blood flow, and then you have the, the functional part that does the work that requires its own oxygenation because it's doing all of this work. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of things going on there that make the, I, I just think the, the kidney is a fascinating organ, but how does hypothermia during cardiopulmonary bypass affect this? What, what can you uh, explain about well, that?
0: As as uh, as you you might uh, you you might know well Joe, uh, anytime you do hypothermia, it's going to have uh, a number of effects. But number one is vasoconstrictive, especially to the periphery, right? Uh, hypothermia is going to have a massive vasoconstrictive effect. And the question is how widespread, and how long, and to what extent uh, is it going to have uh, beyond the periphery? You're going to have vasoconstrictive effects. Do you have it in the uh, gut? Do you have it in the, in the, in the renal and uh, perfusion and so on? So uh, I think hypothermia for general cardiac surgery has gotten to where we think hypothermia is cooling the patient to 35 degrees. You know, that, that was unheard of some years back. We would cool patients always to 28 or 30, right? Thinking yeah, that we absolutely. were preserving, thinking that we were reducing the oxygen demands of the tissue and therefore we had a safety margin if our perfusion were to drop off. Uh, right. so number one it's vasoconstrictive but then when you rewarm the patient you have a whole another litany of problems because the rewarming process now you could have reperfusion injury of the vasoconstrictive areas and you could also have uh, inflammatory responses which you do have when you rewarm mm-hmm. people from a cold temperature mm-hmm. and you know, underneath those three things i just mentioned the vasoconstrictive reduced perfusion the reperfusion injury and the inflammatory response you could take a, a whole semester course on studying what happens when you do those three things to, to the patient. So mm-hmm. you know, many papers that our, our caller could uh, mm-hmm. could probably Google up or something and see.
1: Sure, and I think too, it's important for us to express that um, AKI does not mean long-term renal failure um, or end-stage mm-hmm. renal disease. AK- AKI is measured by a, this bump in creatinine m- may have no clinical uh, significance at all, uh, but yes. it occurs and it goes, it gets listed as AKI, uh, but there's no clinical uh, sequelae that, 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 is, uh, that is manifested, you know, for the patient. They go home and they do just fine. You know, we do. Uh, type 1 dissections under profound hypothermic circulatory arrest, uh, you know, retrograde or selective cerebral perfusion, antigrade, retrograde, whatever you want to do. Um, tomorrow I'm going to be talking a little bit about the cases that I do with uh, translating this into ultrafiltration, Z buff, and various other ways of, of managing either uh, acid base or electrolyte metabolite. Uh, balance and also uh, fluid balance and what we do to patients where we are doing 25 plus liters of of, uh, Z-Buff in a really compressed period of time, about an hour, and uh, of the cases that I've done with that technique, over a 100, none of those patients, not one of those patients has developed Uh, any type of uh, AKI or long-term renal complication associated to the surgery. So, you know, although AKI rates are very high, actual renal failure rates Mm -hmm. requiring dialysis, whether short-term or long-term, is actually a lot lower than that. So I think that's important to point out.
0: What would you say it is, about 2% or so, that people, after, a bypass case. Well with routine cabbages and valves, it's gotta be it's pretty pretty it's pretty low, I would
1: think. I think for maybe routine cabbage, that. very low, probably around two percent, I think for um you know, maybe maybe one to two percent. I think with uh valves, of course, they're always gonna be more problematic for a variety of reasons and a variety of causes, but it's about five to seven percent is is what I understand the data to be. It's
0: probably a lot higher with your aortic complicated aortic. It is I would think. Yes. Yeah. Yes,
1: but again, you know, I've done a lot of type one dissections, and those people have done very well. Some don't, you know, yeah. but I mean, by and large, uh, they survive the operation. They go to the ICU, they recover, and and they go home not on dialysis. So um, yeah. you know, it's surprising to me, and uh, I, I think that you know, I I don't actually think we know. We that we know a lot, but we. But we don't really know. So there's the 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 Don Rumsfeld, you know, series of knowns. There's there's yeah. there's the things we know we know, the things we know we don't know, and the things we don't know we don't know. And of course, that all <laughs> is right. Yeah, and all of that is coming out over time. I think, and maybe one of these millennia, we will actually understand this. Uh but uh very good. It was an excellent review. Tomorrow my 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 review is going to be again more on I'm going to I'm I'm going to spend I think one or two slides on on the kidney. I might steal a couple of yours and uh uh, uh and then really I'm going to be talking more about ultrafiltration and it's known published effect uh whether it be Ultrafiltration for fluid management or whether it be Z-Buff or whatever else you're doing, homeostasis neutrality, um, uh, how that affects or what the data says, how that affects renal function.
0: Well, as you saw from my exhaustive list of uh, AKI risk factors, hemofiltration was not on there. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. I I did
1: notice that. Very good point. Very, very, very good point.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, But I guess you have you know there's some controversy to all, all topics. so it'll be interesting I'll be excited to, to watch. I'll be uh, off work tomorrow and I will be tuning in. hopefully maybe
1: I'll even call in. That'd be great. Yeah, if you want to jump in that'd be fantastic. I would love that very much. In fact, Ramsh is gonna join me. Um, there's another mm-hmm. fella. Uh, Berto from UT down in the Medical Center, who uh, is going to try, and uh, Anne Greco is going to try, or Gretcho. You know, she's the new uh, president of the ABCP. I don't know if you knew that or not. I think she deserves a congrats. I hope she can join us. So, uh, of course, you know, you do these programs in the middle of the week and early in the morning at 8 o'clock. It's, you know, it's always interfered with... with, uh, uh, the surgery schedule, and I'm really trying to figure out, John, which is the best approach. We had a meeting about this yesterday, uh, and we're trying to figure out, you know, I've done, I've done, I've run the gamut, right? I've done long weekend programs. I've done, you know, uh, programs that were multiple presentations at different days of the week, and now I'm doing, you're welcome, Medima, um, and uh, John Medima sends her thank you or gratitude for, uh, to us. Um, I've done the, uh, now this latest iteration where we do short one hour sessions, you know, three days a week or four days a week, a couple of times a month, trying to develop new programs, new shows, you know, similar to yours. You have Tammy Sparacino Spir- journal club. We have the knowledge nuggets. We have the Vanderbilt forum. I'm trying to continue to grow that, but I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know which works best. The the conference style where you have a lot at one time or the sort of snippets, if you will, um, uh, uh, vignettes, however you want to couch it, uh, where we do just a quick one hour a day and, and get through it. And I, 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 I haven't scheduled anything past this latest one because I'm working on trying to figure out what is the best way to do this.
0: Well the great news is that all of these are free and all of these are recorded and logged on your on your site and people can come and pick now I don't know how many presentations must now be cataloged on your site is it is it over 100 yet it's it's
1: I don't know I'll I'll, find, I'll I'll find out in a minute it,
0: we've been it's, doing this for quite a while and there's just, quite a quite a few
1: Yeah just so you know it's it's approaching 300
0: Okay, yeah, I was going to say because I think I've
1: been involved in 30 or 40 myself. (laughs) At least, probably more than that. Uh, but Probably. it's been a uh, it's been a very it's been very rewarding. I've I've enjoyed it a lot. I've enjoyed the uh, the uh, collegiality that uh, I've had with you and with Matt and with Tammy. Ramsha is going to be here tomorrow. Mike Brown, of course, Min comes in and has been here before. Sharon, uh, when you look at our, our uh, you know Dr. Samir when he was coming, uh, 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 Dr. Metoyer, of course, Dr. Duval um you know just a uh, Dr Safi we've really Dr Badia don't want to leave anybody out you know you go through the list of uh, of the folks that we've had and it's really impressive um but yeah. you know we have to keep it going and you always have to be innovating and you have to be trying to change things till you find the right sequence that really works um and so anybody well, out there has any ideas of what timing how to do these works best for everyone let me know
0: well you know joe i mean i, I think when we used to do the half a day four, four or five hour things uh, my guess would be that people to watch all of it would have had to a lot of a half a day to to the show where the snippets were an hour probably people could jump in and jump out for that hour and um and, and catch it uh, a little easier than a four hour block if they're busy but at the same time um I think mixing up the times and doing it all different times is going to accommodate the most people because people's schedules are always changing. You're always on call. Mm-hmm. Different days are off. Different days are working and travelers and whatnot, you know, like I do. And um, I never really know when it's going to be a good time for me. I, I couldn't tell you. So, I mean, the mix gives me uh, a good chance that I might hit, hit them uh, on a good time. But it, it's hit mm-hmm. or miss, I think, probably with everybody to some extent,
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if it's a short show like this, you could watch it while they're taking the mammary down. There's some guys that take at least an hour to do it. Not everybody, but some, some, you know. Um, and uh, and uh, it's, you know, we'll figure it out. So we'll see. So look at our website, because I'll be developing our next presentations, and you'll see what we've decided. So at, uh, that'll be coming up in the next day or so. So it won't be very long. All and right, so...
0: Um... The guys, if you want to reach out to me, remember it's at perfweb.us. You can send me an email, comments, questions, suggestions for future show, I would love to see that. And I do answer all my emails uh, as thoroughly as possible and as quickly as possible. So feel free to email
1: me and let's strike up a conversation. I can always learn something from you. Perfect. Thank you so much, John. Good seeing you, everybody out there in web world. Thank you all for joining in. Madima, thank you so much for your excellent uh, participation and questions. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all uh, tomorrow morning. I got my eight o'clock program to do so. I'll see you then. Bye bye. I'll be there. I'll be there.